From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Monday, November 28th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Egypt's historic elections begin smoothly, but democracy may not be what Egypt's military rulers want. Democracy in Egypt is a threat to the core interests of the Egyptian armed forces, which wants to remain the repository of the state's legitimacy, authority, and power. And later, Pakistanis demand revenge for a U.S. airstrike that killed Pakistani soldiers. If your borders are being breached, uh, your soldiers are being killed, then you just go scramble your jets and raid the airports. PRI's The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today, Egyptians lined up and voted. Despite a stormy run-up to the vote, the turnout was high and the atmosphere calm. These are the first free elections in Egypt since the toppling of President Hosni Mubarak. His regime buckled after a wave of massive protests demanded his ouster. Last week, protesters were backing Cairo's Tahrir Square to demand that Egypt's generals also step aside. Deadly clashes followed. But today, it's the casting of ballots that's making headlines. The world's Matthew Bell was on hand for the first votes cast today in Cairo. It's just after 8 a.m. in the well-to-do Cairo suburb of Mahdi. More than 250 men are lined up waiting to cast their votes inside a middle school. A handful of Egyptian soldiers stand guard, wearing green camouflage with AK-47s in hand. The site is crowded but calm. People seem excited about voting day, including schoolteacher Ibrahim Youssef. Absolutely, he says. This is a historic day. The elections process will allow a civilian government to take over from the military, and Egypt can finally claim its rightful place in the world. But that will take a while. Egypt's new voting system is complicated and drawn out. It's taking place on a staggered schedule in different parts of the country. The plan is to have both houses of parliament in place by March of next year. But voters here tell me they're still encouraged. Khalid Fauzi is a 32-year-old businessman. He says what's going on here is very different from election days during the Mubarak era. Each candidate has his own team who, uh, you know, hands out flyers. Usually these people are very violent with each other and they're armed and they have knives and so on. But this morning I saw them, they were very, you know, organizing each other in a very civil way and, you know, discussing, we'll take this part of the street, you take this part of the street. And they're being very cooperative. I think this was a very, very positive sign as well. While the relative calm was a good sign, handing out flyers near polling stations is technically a violation of the ban on last-minute campaigning. In other instances, cars blasted political messages from loudspeakers. Some polling sites opened up late this morning. Many of them demanded real patience. 
In another part of the Mahdi suburb, more than 1,200 women queued up in a separate line at a high school for girls. It's a mixed crowd of upper and middle class women, some more conservatively dressed than others. One of them, who gives her name as Noor, wears a full black veil that shows only her eyes. But she says religion isn't the top issue for her as a voter. The most important thing, she says, is for Egyptians to be able to live together in peace and be free. She adds it doesn't matter if a candidate is an Islamist or not. What Egypt really needs is better education. Men line up at another polling site in the working-class Cairo neighborhood of Shubra. Volunteers from the Muslim Brotherhood are here. They've got a laptop computer set up, and they're helping voters make sure they're in the right location to vote. Yasser Baha is a bit frustrated the site opened up two and a half hours late and that some would-be voters went home. Our goal for today is that everybody here vote. I mean, even if if the, the time finished, then we should put all the people standing outside inside the school, close the door and keep them until even midnight, until they finish. That message goes against the calls from activists in Tahrir Square. Many of them say this election is illegitimate because it's being run by the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. In fact, by the exact same group who engineered last year's fraud-ridden polling under former President Hosni Mubarak. Demonstrators want the military to hand over power to a civilian government immediately. The square is still occupied, but numbers dropped today. Still staunch supporters of the protests, like Egyptian journalist Ibrahim Aissa, say they can't stop now. I think there can be no half-revolution, he says. It should be completed. The military council is part of the old regime. The aim of the revolution is to get rid of this regime from the roots and to rebuild. But the Egyptians who turned out at the polls today seem to think that the best way to start rebuilding is to take part in the elections and to go from there. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Stephen Cook is Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's the author of the book The Struggle for Egypt, From Nasser to Tahrir Square. Stephen Cook, from your own perspective, as somebody who has watched what's been unfolding in Egypt up close, what is the significance of these parliamentary elections and what's at stake for Egypt itself? Well, it's significant on two levels. First, after last week's terrible violence in Tahrir Square and the political divisions that seem to have been emerging during that time, it is inspiring to see many Egyptians go out to the polling places that these polls have, for the most part, been peaceful. People have been respectful for each other. More broadly, the elections uh, are the very beginning of this new phase of Egyptian politics in which Egyptians are going to build a new political system. There's much hope for a more democratic and open system, and that's why so many people have turned out to vote today. Because the parliamentarians who are elected are going to be shaping, writing, basically, a new constitution for Egypt. Despite the elections, though, as you know, the uh, the military council, the ruling council, seems to want to hang on to political power. Can it do so? Well, the military has promulgated a, a series of what's called supra-constitutional principles, principles that are intended to enshrine a role for the military into the constitution. Uh, it is going to be hard for them to do that 
in the way that they had envisioned, given the protests of last week and given the fact that this is setting up to be a popularly elected parliament, free and fair elections with a popular mandate. There are many Egyptians who support the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, but they don't support, importantly, they don't support the military recreating another military-dominated political order in Egypt. Stephen, I think, and tell me if you think this is fair to say, that, that you have not placed a lot of stock in the idea that Egypt's military was preparing for a democracy. No. Democracy in Egypt is a threat in many ways to the core interests of the Egyptian armed forces, which has a vast economic empire, which wants to remain the repository of the state's legitimacy, authority, and power, and which has a very different conception of what stability looks like in Egypt, as opposed to a cacophonous, uh, more democratic, uh, uncertain political system, which is likely to occur as a result of these elections. The polls are saying that um, it looks like Islamist groups are making a fairly strong showing in Egypt's parliamentary elections. Is that something that should be worrisome to those who are looking toward democratic Egypt in the future? Well, Egypt's Islamist groups have done very well, and I'm not sure that anybody should be terribly surprised by this. It's unclear what the Islamist intentions actually are. Uh, They have become adept at leveraging the language of reform and political change and positioning themselves as a force for modernization and democratization. Uh, But ultimately, uh, this is an empirical question. The Islamists have never held power. They've never accumulated power in a way that they're likely to in this next parliament. So we'll just have to see. All right. Stephen Cook, Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. His latest book is called The Struggle for Egypt from Nasser to Tahrir Square. Thanks a lot, Stephen. My pleasure. We'll have more Egypt election coverage online, including the latest tweets from the world's Matthew Bell in Cairo. Check it all out at theworld.org. Today, voters also went to the polls in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's just the African country's second election after more than four decades of dictatorship and a series of wars. The lead-up to today's vote has been marred by violence. At least nine people died and more than 80 were wounded in the capital, Kinshasa, in clashes with security forces. Reporter Michael Kavanaugh visited polling stations in Kinshasa and spent time with first-time voters. Eleven men are running for president and almost 19,000 candidates are vying for some 500 seats in parliament. In this Kinshasa voting station, the ballot is more than 50 pages long. It looks like a tabloid newspaper. Just getting ballots to the 63,000 polling stations across the country has been a challenge. Congo is practically the size of Western Europe with extremely poor roads. The country has had to borrow dozens of helicopters from neighboring countries to transport election material. Some were grounded today because it's the rainy season. So, of course, it was raining. Anita Vandenbeld is the Congo country director for the National Democratic Institute, which has been working with political parties here. Obviously, this is a difficult country to have elections. It's a very large country. There are a number of logistical problems um, to added to that is the fact that there has been, in some ways, lack of communication with the political parties um, from the Electoral Commission, which, in some instances, if you combine that with the logistical problems, can create suspicion. And I think that we saw some of that recently with some of the, the violence that has occurred. The lead-up to the vote has seen hundreds of violent attacks, most by the country's security forces, against opponents of incumbent President Joseph Kabila. 
In the neighborhood where Kabila's main challenger, Etienne Chisaketi, lives, people lined up to vote starting at 6 in the morning. The scene was peaceful, but chaotic for some. 51-year-old Clotilde Bawata has already been to five different voting stations looking for her name on the registration list. But it's not there. What can I do, she says. I'm also a citizen and I need to vote. For 19-year-old Marius Ntumba, it's his first time voting. He says he can barely remember the country's last elections in 2006 when militias fought deadly street battles in Kinshasa after the vote. Marius hopes it will be different this time. History has changed. The world and technology have evolved with science. We don't want war here in DRC, like what happened in Libya or Ivory Coast. The average Congolese makes less than a dollar a day. The UN actually named Congo the least developed country in the world this year. That's why Marius says he's voting for Etienne Chisaketi. Marius wants change, and he wants to help be a part of that change. He's studying for his PhD in law. Because in our country, we have a problem with human rights. There are a lot of people who have been killed here. This is why I'm studying law, to defend my country. But scratch below the surface, and you quickly see how these elections could lead to more killing. Marius says he's ready to die for his country if the elections don't go well. The tension was evident at another voting station on the other side of the city. Voters accused an election worker of stuffing ballots. They kicked him repeatedly in the head until police intervened. 100% thief, the crowd chants as the man was led away. And election-related violence broke out in other cities. All this doesn't bode well for December 6th, when provisional results will be announced. I'm worried about that, about violence. Glody Mfukani Diasilua is a 19-year-old from Kinshasa. He's also voting for the first time today, part of the first generation to grow up in a Congo where voting, not dictatorship, is the norm. If we vote our candidate for our good, we don't want after elections people die. No, it's not good for us. We need peace. He says he hopes Congo's future will be better than today. For The World, I'm Michael Kavanaugh, Kinshasa. Democratic Republic of Congo. More news, our global hit, and our geo-quiz coming up. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from Medtronic, working across borders, disciplines, and industries to deliver medical technology solutions that help improve healthcare around the world. Learn more at Medtronic.com innovation. Medtronic, innovating for life. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The healthcare system is in trouble, and it's getting harder for lower-income families to get good medical care. Nope, we're not describing the American health system. Our focus is Romania. A growing number of people in the Eastern European nation are having to turn to charity for help with their medical bills. The world's Jerry Haddon has more from Bucharest. Alessia Truica is five months old. Her eyes are milky blue. As soon as the baby opened them, her mother, Daniela, says she knew something was wrong. Alessia was born with opaque corneas, her mother says. No light gets in, so she needs a transplant for both eyes. Without it, my daughter won't be able to see. The Truicas say they sought out Romania's best eye surgeon. 
His advice, says Daniela, caught them by surprise. She says the doctor told us to go home and wait, that he'd fix Alessia's eyes, in three years. That's because in Romania there isn't a single doctor with the expertise to do this surgery on babies, only on older children. To get treatment now, the Trikas must go abroad. In the years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Romania had good medical facilities and lots of good doctors. How things went south is complicated, says Radu Krecin, an economist who studies healthcare. Krecin says spending on healthcare has actually gone up in recent years, but the quality has gone down. The hospitals have been big spenders without uh, justifying their spendings. I think it's about corruption. It's about the wrong type of relationships between uh, the pharma companies and doctors who all the time recommend the most expensive medicine. So there are bits and pieces which lead to a dysfunctional system. And now budget cuts are beginning. At least one hospital has been closed and salaries for state health care workers reduced. As a result, Romania is losing many of its best doctors to better jobs abroad. Andrescu George Dorin was supposed to be one of the new generation of Romanian doctors, the ones who might compensate for the brain drain. He graduated from medical school in 2007, but he says he promptly hung up his stethoscope. Everything is falling down, brick by brick, and I'm terrified by this. And I don't want to be a part of this. When I started the medicine school, I started with some hopes, with some big expectations. And when I finished the medicine school, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's disastrous. I can take you a tour on the hospitals all over Romania, and you'll be terrified. Dorin is now a music DJ. His stage name, Gojira. But on this night, he says he's doing more to help a sick person than the state is. He's playing a charity party for Alessia Truica, the blind baby. Gojira and some of Romania's most famous bands are performing free in this old cotton processing factory in Bucharest. The woman who organized this event, Adina Tsipa, says unless something changes, this is the likely future of healthcare funding for the poor. Even though if we don't manage to have a lot, a lot of money in one event or two or maybe or three, it's important that we help with a little money, I don't know, but everyone um, can find out about the case and other people, uh, maybe they have children and they will find out uh, through us about the case and they want to donate. The Romanian government isn't oblivious to its health care crisis. Beginning next year, it plans an ambitious overhaul. The idea is to let hospitals compete with each other for private insurance contracts. Economist Radu Grecin says health care will still be free, but people will be able to buy additional insurance for the best care. And if you're poor and can't afford it? You'll enjoy a so-called basic package, a basic package which still has to be defined. If that basic package isn't a market improvement from Romania's health care today, then families like the Trikas will likely still turn to charity for help. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Bucharest, Romania. Here in the United States, it seems that people are in the mood to forget about the rising health care costs and a gloomy economy. Retailers here are reporting record spending by consumers over the long Thanksgiving weekend. That's topped off by today's Cyber Monday sales. All of this spending could be a good sign for the U.S. and for global economies. But Sheldon Garin would rather see Americans save more. He's a professor at Princeton University and the author of Beyond Our Means, Why America Spends While the World Saves. Okay, Sheldon, how stark are the differences between what we save here and what the rest of the world saves over there? 
Well, at this point, they become stock again. Uh, the saving rate, that's the, the personal saving rate as a percentage of disposable household income, is now down below 4%, uh, whereas uh, Germans, French, Belgians, Swedes, they're all over 10%. A significant difference. What's the reason? Actually, it goes back decades and decades, even as, as uh, far back as the 1800s, that the Europeans and, and also the Japanese set up a lot of institutions that really incentivized what we call small savers, ordinary people to save. They took very small deposits, no minimum balances. These were things like savings banks, postal savings banks. Uh, and a lot of these institutions still survive in Europe and in Japan. Uh, they certainly facilitate saving. That's one thing. The other thing is that nobody else in the first world has levels of credit uh, and the availability of cheap credit that Americans do. This has been a story in the post-war, but particularly since the 1980s. So Americans got to a point in the 1990s and early 2000s when they could borrow against credit cards, take out home equity loans, uh, get mortgages, and it, it, it no longer seemed necessary to most Americans to actually save up for things. Okay, but maybe saving is not necessarily better, given the fact that the economies of Japan and much of Europe right now aren't exactly in, in very good shape. Well, you're certainly right about Japan. Uh, the northern European countries are not in bad shape, or at least they haven't been in bad shape until right now. And of course, if they're in bad shape now, it's because of the rest of Europe's problems. But the German economy uh, is in much more stable shape than ours. Uh, you don't see people forced out of their homes. You don't see people over-indebted. Is this yeah. because people are indeed saving? Uh, well, that's one of the reasons. The other reason is a social support system that, of course, we don't have, safety nets. But the two actually go together. And what, what the northern Europeans have succeeded in doing is while they're not uh, fancy economies where people can spend a lot, they're economies that are stable where most people live within a middle class means and are able to keep spending, in other words, at a moderate level, whereas we have these boom and bust cycles, and right now we're definitely in a bust cycle where you have millions of households uh, either losing their homes, underwater, indebted, and they really don't have the capacity to spend much past this, uh, this weekend. And of course, the prognosis is that probably Americans in December may not be able to keep spending to sustain the economy, and it's partly because they haven't saved. And very briefly, give us an example of, of uh, someplace where it is working. Well, I think you would find in Germany, uh, which has been a very stable economy without the booms and the busts, uh, they have an active system of, of savings banks uh, that you would find in every German town and city, very accessible. They offer special small savers accounts uh, for youth and others that tend to pay rather attractive interest rates. They promote a social goal that it's good if everybody saves to some extent and not become over-indebted. They also have strict policies against over-indebtedness and activate parts of their welfare state to try and prevent or help people who are over-debted to get out of debt. Okay. Thank you very much, Sheldon Garin, Professor of History and East Asian Studies at Princeton. He's the author of a new book called Beyond Our Means, Why America Spends While the World Saves. Thanks a lot, Sheldon. Thank you. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, a classical guitarist from Montenegro on the rock star status of the late guitar legend Andres Segovia. When I play a concert, I get uh, people who, who live to see Andres Segovia, and they come and they say, oh, I went to see Segovia, you know, with, with such shine in their eyes, as if today you say, I went to see Gaga. PRI's The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, 
leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Pakistan may be pulling out of an international conference on Afghanistan that's set for next week. That's the latest fallout from a bad weekend for U.S.-Pakistani relations. On Saturday, a NATO attack along the border with Afghanistan left 24 Pakistani soldiers dead. Pakistan reacted angrily. It shut down NATO supply lines that crossed from Pakistan into Afghanistan, and it gave U.S. personnel two weeks to leave an airbase in southwestern Pakistan that's used by the Pentagon to support drone missions in the region. Reporter Fahad Dismuk has more on the Pakistani reaction from Karachi. Those who are friends of America and NATO are traitors. That's the rally cry at this protest demonstration in Karachi, organized by the officially banned Jamaat Dawa Islamist group. The turnout isn't huge, just a few hundred people waving the black and white Jamaat Dawa flag. But it's just one of several such protests across the country today and follows a larger rally in front of Karachi's U.S. consulate yesterday. They're seething against Saturday's NATO airstrike on Pakistani soil. And speakers like Navid Qamar are calling on the Pakistani government to take a stronger response. If U.S. or NATO helicopters even enter Pakistan, then they should be shot down. Even if that means following them back into Afghanistan, we must have revenge for our martyrs. The participants at this demonstration are all associated with Pakistan's Islamist parties and don't represent the bulk of society. But this specific issue of cross-border attacks does resonate across much of the political spectrum in the country. Many Pakistanis have long been uncomfortable with their government's alliance with the U.S. in its war on terror. This is the Jamaat-e-Islami's Nasrullah Shaji. Today, those NATO forces are spilling the blood of oppressed Muslims in Afghanistan. We shared air bases and our intelligence with them. Today, those same NATO forces are attacking the Pakistani military. For many of those at this rally, this is the last straw and are just as angered by the Pakistani government's weak response as they are by NATO's attacks on Pakistani soil. Abdul Rahman is a spokesperson for the Jamaat al-Dawah. He says the killing of uniformed Pakistani troops makes matters even worse. If your uh, borders are being breached, uh, uh, your soldiers are being killed, then there's no reason to stay back and ask someone to apologize. You just go scramble your jets and, you know, you can raid their posts. That's the basic thing you have to do. Temporary, uh, you know, settlements like asking them to apologize or, uh, you know, blocking the supplies, this is not the solution. There's no point in uh, saying that we, we won't let this happen We have our sovereignty. Either give them everything you have or defend it. That's the main thing. Others, like Asadullah Bhutto of the mainstream Islamist Jamaat-e-Islami party, want the government to take this up with the international community. I think it is the right of the Pakistan to take this matter to the Security Council of UNO and other international forums because it is violation of international conventions. They have violated our geographical territory and the government of Pakistan should take it seriously. The immediate popular anger in response to this airstrike is likely to eventually die down, as has been the case with previous incidents like this.
but what's unclear is what the incremental impact of all of these incidents will be on Pakistani-U.S. relations in the long term. For the world, I'm Fahad Desmok in Karachi, Pakistan. As we noted a bit earlier, Islamabad is ordering the U.S. to vacate an airbase located inside Pakistan. American personnel have been told to leave the remote Shamsi airbase within the next two weeks. Spencer Ackerman is a senior reporter for Danger Room. That's Wired Magazine's national security blog. You know, a lot of people, I think, will find it surprising, Spencer, that Americans have been operating out of Pakistani territory to begin with. How long has this been going on, and how come Pakistan's letting it happen? Oh, years it's been going on for Shamsi is one of the the major launching pads for the U.S.'s drone war in Pakistan. And that cooperation has been going on since at least 2009. Basically, there's this two-step that's going on whereby for public consumption, uh, the Pakistani government acts furious at any U.S. military incursions onto its territory, like with the Osama bin Laden raid in May. But more regularly in private, uh, Pakistan assists the U.S. with a rather furious and secret campaign of bombardment that's been happening uh, using unmanned U.S. planes, commonly known as drones. So is the Pakistani government serious when it says it's going to oust the U.S. from this area, which is a pretty remote area of Pakistan? I guess it used to be a falconry. Does it really want the U.S. out now? These difficulties in the U.S.-Pakistan relationship tend to be characterized more by mutual acrimony than by sharp breaks, departures, or finality. Losing Shamsi would be a a serious inconvenience uh, for the U.S. drone war, but it wouldn't stop it. Uh, The U.S. has other options, including across the border into Afghanistan, uh, bases like Jalalabad or Kandahar, also host U.S. drones. The U.S. could just, you know, base the war out of out of those, for instance. So it remains to be seen how serious this latest flare-up will actually become. Given what you call this two-step uh, that the Pakistani government does, I wonder if it could be that for public consumption, it's ordering American troops out, and uh, in reality, that uh, perhaps the U.S. could simply just stay there and be under the radar in all ways. Well, it's significant that, according to the Pentagon, a few other things haven't happened, even despite this um, really, as as they put it, regrettable loss of life or the killing of Pakistani soldiers. Uh, Pakistan hasn't demanded more U.S. military personnel uh, leave Pakistan, as happened uh, after, I believe, the Raymond Davis incident, where a CIA contractor killed a few Pakistani civilians earlier this year. Um, and it also, as I reported on Danger Room at Wired.com uh, today, hasn't denied the U.S. any access to its airspace, which would be a far more significant step impeding the drone war. Meaning it's saying, okay, get out of this one base, but you can still use our airspace for drones or aircraft strikes. Exactly. So why is it allowing that to happen if it's getting such heat from Pakistanis? Well, it's an indication that the Pakistanis rely on the U.S. uh, for a variety of things, and they want to still rely on them. For instance, there's a massive U.S. uh, civilian aid package to the Pakistanis, $7.5 billion over five years. Pakistan's premier uh, jets and its air force are U.S.-provided F-16s, and they need consistent supplies of U.S. spare parts to operate. And on and on down the list, uh, the Pakistanis and the U.S. uh, government's don't really like one another, but they also don't like the idea of living without one another either. There's one thing that seems as if it's serious, maybe you can set us straight on this, and this is that the Pakistanis, in response to the deaths of so many of its troops, are now saying that it's going to shut down this key supply route from Pakistan 
to Afghanistan, a supply route that the Americans used to bring gas and food, among other provisions, to Americans and, uh, and allied forces in Afghanistan. How serious is that? It remains to be seen. The Pakistanis shut down these overland supply routes uh, repeatedly. They've done it several times, usually to protest one U.S. military accident or another. At the same time, a tremendous percentage of U.S. supplies, cargo, etc., comes through Pakistan. So impeding that, particularly the fuel, um, is a major obstacle for the war. The Pentagon uh, said today repeatedly uh, that the war effort continues, but it's definitely something that weighs on their minds quite seriously. The White House said today that the U.S. relationship with Pakistan is complicated, but it's important to maintain cooperation uh, between Washington and Islamabad. Um, Do indications show today that Pakistan believes the same thing? Um, I think the more serious indication isn't what the Pakistanis say, but what they do. Um, And if they're shutting down the supply routes, but not forcing the U.S. out of its airspace, um, it's going to continue to send this mixed message that it won't actually end that relationship. But at the same time, it wants to show the U.S. that it considers uh, the blood of its soldiers uh, sacred and inviolable. And so it'll raise the price of military accidents like this in the future. Spencer Ackerman, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You can find Spencer Ackerman's story for Wired Magazine's national security blog, Danger Room. It's at theworld.org. You might imagine the typical Peace Corps volunteer to be a fresh-faced recent college grad hoping for an exotic experience before starting up a career or a family. The Peace Corps turns 50 this year, and it's just as interested in volunteers who are well into retirement. Reporter Megan Verlee found a good example in Ethiopia. Meet Peace Corps volunteer Ken Kieser. Good name for this story, since, as he says, it rhymes with... Geezer. (laughs) Sort of appropriate for the subject we're right. on. <laughs> I met Kieser in the Ethiopian town of Fenote Salam, where he's been volunteering for two years. Kieser is one busy man. He's helped start a school library, built a chicken house to employ women with HIV, designed a medical records database, and today he's taking a mentally ill woman to get her prescriptions at the local hospital. Uh, it's her appointment. Yeah, yeah. Not bad for a man pushing 70. At a time when many retirees are working on their golf swing or doting on grandkids, Kieser is realizing a lifelong goal. One day it just dawned on me, I'm free. I have no commitments. It is time to do the Peace Corps. And it's something I'd always wanted to do, but just never had had the, the freedom to do it before. When President John F. Kennedy first raised the call for volunteers 50 years ago, Kieser wanted to answer. But he was a young married father, far too tied down to go running off to the ends of the earth. Waiting half a century didn't dim his enthusiasm, though. In fact, Kieser says his age is improving the experience. I think that my ability to be patient, to be tolerant, would have been a lot different than it is now. So I suspect it would have been much harder to have the same kind of experience I'm having now. Waiting those 50 years also means Kieser brings a career's worth of experience to his posting. 
Peace Corps Deputy Director Carrie Hessler-Radelet says older volunteers are an asset to the organization. And are important not only to help us meet some of the more scarce skills, the higher level skills that our countries ask for, but they also provide a valuable uh, resource to our younger volunteers. They serve as mentors to them. About 7% of Peace Corps' nearly 9,000 volunteers are over 50 years old. That figure's only increased marginally in recent years, despite recruiting efforts targeted at seniors. So the Peace Corps is stepping up its relationship to the biggest organization of older Americans out there, the AARP. Under a recently announced arrangement, the two groups are working together to connect older people with volunteer opportunities. AARP's Barb Quainton says Peace Corps can have a lot of appeal for people hitting retirement. You know, you're looking for your what's next, as we call it at AARP. Volunteering in this kind of a way can be really, really significant. And it's not just the Peace Corps that's getting interested in older Americans. In fact, the whole service world, really only in the last few years, has begun to kind of, you know, say, wow, just a second here. You know, we've been thinking about kids when we talk about service. But what about all these amazing people who have raised their hand and said, yeah, just ask me and and I'll sign up too. Of course, jaunting off to the ends of the earth might give some aging people pause. There are things like mortgages and Social Security payments to sort out. And about a third of older volunteers are married, although the Peace Corps doesn't know how many of those couples go overseas together. The organization also has a long list of answers on its website to frequently asked questions about health and insurance. But those worries apparently never bothered Keith Kieser. Sitting in his house in Ethiopia, surrounded by photos of his world travels and the people he's met here, Kieser has trouble picturing his life as a retiree. Quite honestly, if I go back to the States, what am I going to do? You know, if I come back to the States, I feel a little bit frivolous. Whereas here, there's so much that needs to be done. The Peace Corps, Kieser says, gives him the ability to do those things. Maybe, he jokes, he'll just spend the rest of his life as a volunteer. It's the kind of passion the Peace Corps is hoping to harness in more older Americans. For the world... I'm Megan Verlee, Fenote Salam, Ethiopia. Megan's coverage from Ethiopia was supported by the International Reporting Project. Last week, we ran a story about people who found love in the Peace Corps. Many of you responded. Here's one comment from our website. My older brother joined the Peace Corps in 1970. He met his wife, a fellow Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa. They've been together ever since. While now my son is serving in the Peace Corps in Madagascar, will he fall in love while he's there? I sure hope so. Here's another comment. Statistically speaking, returned Peace Corps volunteers are successful individuals in their life after the Corps. Many would attest that finding relevance in their projects abroad can be difficult, but that's not the only goal. Most important is to give your host community the opportunity for a positive view of the USA. And finally, this observation. Romance is easy to find in the Peace Corps. It's thrilling and euphoric, but it's prone to more complications than love next door. My own Peace Corps marriage didn't go so well, though I'm happy to see many others thrive. In the end, though, the Peace Corps is as much about learning as anything else. And what teaches you more about yourself and gets you deep into the host culture than romance? If you'd like to add a comment on this or any of the stories you hear on The World, go for it. You can find us at theworld.org.
We're on the road for today's GeoQuiz, and the road we're on is in Sri Lanka. It's the country's first ever highway. It runs north and south. It connects two cities that are 75 miles apart. One is Sri Lanka's capital. The other is a southern seaport. The four-lane highway cuts travel time, and that's good news for merchants moving truckloads of cinnamon, coconut, tea, and rubber to and from the capital. The BBC reporter that we spoke to today got a sneak preview of the newly opened expressway. The only other traffic, really, were a few construction vehicles, which, uh, rather disconcertingly, were quite often uh, coming uh, in the opposite direction to us, but on our side. <laughs> so we had to be a bit careful of, the, uh, of that kind of eventuality. Yeah, let's just hope they work the snags out. And we hope you can name the two cities this $700 million highway connects. The answers are just around the bend. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. We're looking for the E1 Expressway for our GeoQuiz today. This is a new highway that runs north-south in Sri Lanka. The expressway is only about 75 miles long, but it opens up a major transportation corridor. The BBC's Charles Havlin has been driving along Sri Lanka's first major highway. Where, where exactly does the road go? Well, it starts in Colombo, the uh, economic and commercial capital of the country, which is about two-thirds of the way down the west coast of this fairly small island. And then it goes down to the deep south, down south, as they say, uh, to a place called Gaul, which you may recall from the tsunami. It was very, very badly hit. It's one of the oldest and quaintest towns in Sri Lanka. It was built in the Portuguese and Dutch eras, uh, in other words, uh, about the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. But it's also an important agricultural area of the country. They grow quite a lot of spices like cinnamon and cloves, and they grow tea uh, in some of the hills in the uh, interior. And I think that, obviously, both the tourism and the business were there in mind when this road was constructed. This really very novel and unique road. It's a novel and unique road because there's none other like it, or is there something about the nature of the road itself? Mainly that there's no other like it. I mean... You'll normally be on a single roadway sharing the road with the stray dogs and with pedestrians, of course, who will be crisscrossing it and with what Sri Lankans call three-wheelers, which are motorised rickshaws which seem to ply all over the country, and with two-wheelers, of course, motorbikes, and with very, very noisy buses, which when you get stuck behind them, you often can't actually pass them. So that is what is going to be very different and radically different. That's right. One would think that this would make a huge difference, both for those people who are in Gaul and then the people yes. in Colombo, which is an extremely cosmopolitan city, the capital, including the average uh, tea or rubber merchant or fisherman, perhaps. What's this going to mean this highway? Well, very much so. It'll probably mean better profits, better able to get their goods to and fro quickly. You mentioned fishermen, very, very much intrinsic to Sri Lankan life and economy. They might not be driving the goods themselves at all, but of course they'll be uh, selling them on via middleman and and thereby getting a higher price if the middleman knows that he can get uh, more um, items, more produce shifted. So I was talking to an antique dealer and jeweller in his shop the other day in Gaul. Um, he had a gemstone dealer, I think a middleman who'd probably come down from the gem mining areas in the hills. Again, will be able to come down more quickly by hitting the coast somewhere between Colombo and Gaul 
and then getting there more quickly. So I think it's really going to be quite advantageous for many people. When you took one of the initial rides on this highway uh, a couple of days ago, first, I'm wondering what the speed limit was. Secondly, I'm just wondering what it was like and whether or not you had to face any of those rickshaws full of bananas or anything else. (laughs) The speed limit on the new highway has been placed at 100 kilometers an hour, which I think is about 62 and a half miles an hour. Sri Lankans are having to be taught the rules of these roads, that you can't suddenly reverse if you miss your exit, that you can't park your vehicle in the uh, emergency lane and then just get out and go for a walk. There were some three-wheelers, some motorised rickshaws, which interestingly will not be allowed now that the road has officially opened, and uh, people going uh, against the flow of traffic will not be allowed, which is what exactly what the construction vehicles were doing. So I had a bit of a unique taster, but I'm looking forward to trying it for real next time I want to go down south. The BBC's Charles Havlin speaking to us about the new highway from Colombo to Gaul, both in Sri Lanka, both the answers to our geo-quiz. Nice to talk to you, Charles. Great to talk to you, Lisa. Take care. And finally today, name four great guitarists from the 20th century. Now, chances are you're thinking about maybe Jimi Hendrix or Django Reinhardt or maybe Prince or Clapton, or perhaps you thought of Andres Segovia. The late classical guitar legend is an important figure in today's global hit because, as the world's Marco Werman explains, another young classical guitarist believes the instrument should reclaim its position in symphony halls. With his talent, Milos Karadaglic is in a position to make big pronouncements. The native of Montenegro believes the guitar is the most popular instrument in the world. But as he says, classical guitar is the least popular style among guitarists. Milos often goes simply by his first name. Despite that, he's not really aiming for rock star status as a classical guitarist, but he's aware that classical guitarists can be rock stars. Andrei Segovia was worshipped by absolutely everybody. When I play a concert, I get uh, people who live to see Andrei Segovia, and they come and they say, oh, I went to see Segovia, you know, with, with such shine in their eyes, as if today you say, I went to see Gaga. When Milos plays Asturias, it's with the obligatory fervor and attention to technical detail that the work demands. Milos began playing guitar when he was a boy. When I picked up guitar, like everybody else, I wanted to sing, play a few chords, and be cool and have lots of girlfriends. He showed talent and went on to music school, but as soon as his teachers showed him the rigors of practice and how to train his fingers, Milos lost interest. He almost ditched the guitar. But his father re-inspired him. And he digged through his collection of records. And he played me a Segovia record. And he said, come come to listen to this. And when I heard Segovia play, and it was Asturias, I remember. When I heard that, in my, in my ears and in my whole body, there something happened. And I was like, okay, if you can make this with your own fingers and one instrument, without any kind of plug-in, without anything else... I want to learn to play this kind of guitar and I want to play it for as many people in this world as possible. That objective has apparently never slipped from his sight. Last month, 28-year-old Milos played Carnegie Hall, clear evidence that he's followed the mantra of practice, practice, practice. He's more than just a self-disciplined man with a skill, though. Along the way, and at a rather young age, Milos began to realize that music is more than entertainment. It also has the power to heal. 
Milos began to play the guitar in the 1990s as the war in the Balkans broke out, which also had the potential to derail his playing. But then at the same time, to discover music at that really difficult time was such a blessing for me as much as for my whole family, because in a way it was an escape. My parents were the kind of parents who always wanted me and my brother to feel very safe, and they wanted me to, uh, us to feel like everything was okay. And my thing was the guitar, so their support and encouragement was very important at this time. Montenegro was spared the level of atrocity that other parts of the Balkans were not. Still, the solace that Milos found, he now passes on to others when he performs. As Milos says, he's not in control when he plays. When I play, says Milos, I don't think about it. I just play. For The World, I'm Marco Werman. You can see Marco's interview with Milos and hear what Milos thinks about being marketed as something of a classical heartthrob at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, online at plowshares.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.